Thanks for joining us today for Indiana Farmland Values and Cash Rental Rates. I'm Jim Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today are my colleagues, Dr. Michael Langemeyer, who's Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue, and also the Associate Director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture, and Todd Keithy, who is an Associate Professor in Ag Economics and also the Schrader, holder of the Schrader Chair in Farmland Economics. Um, each year since the mid-1970s, the Purdue Agricultural Economics Department has conducted a survey regarding farmland values and cash rental rates. And heading up that survey this year is Dr. Todd Keithy. And so, Todd, talk to us a little bit about the survey, the history of the survey, a little bit of background, and then we'll talk about some of the results that you collected. Sure. Uh, thanks, Jim. As you, as you mentioned, the survey has gone on since uh, the mid-1970s um, as an annual survey we do in the department. So we survey um, brokers, farm realist, uh, farm appraisers, uh, lenders, folks that touch the farmland market as part of their regular operation of business. And we, uh, we do this to collect information about sort of market conditions, specifically prices is a big part of it, um, but also what are the drivers, what do they see as the big things happening in the farmland market. And so we ask them predominantly about uh, farmland prices when the survey is conducted in June, um, as well as the previous December, and when they make some projection of where they see it uh, at the end of the year, at the end of uh, this December. Um, and we ask about three different land qualities, so top, average, and poor quality, and that's based on soil productivity. And so they give us a long run uh, Corn, run, corn yield estimate at each of those levels for their for the county they operate in. And then we split those uh, counties up into six regions around the state. Um, and we give state level averages uh, across those three uh, conditions also at the regional level. Um, and we also ask about rental rates um, and a number of other factors that are uh, sort of driving the land prices. So share with us the results. This is really what people have been kind of waiting for, right? What, what's been the change in farmland values in 2021 versus 2020? So um, prices are up. They're way up, um, up uh, between 12 and 14 percent, depending on land quality. Um, and this is actually a new record high for the state. And so our previous high was set in 2014. Um, and then we had a period where prices had moderated a little bit, plateaued. Um, we did see some upward movement last year from 2019 to 2020, um, and that continued actually at a, at a faster pace into this year. So that top average value in the 2021 survey is almost $10,000, 97.85, higher than it was a year ago. And I guess, Todd, when I look at it, the first thing I think of, wow, a double-digit increase in farmland values. How often does that happen? So... Um, it's not that rare anymore um, since about 2005, 2006. So prices really started taking off around 2007 or eight. Um, and I think we've had about half of the time we've seen double digit increases um, over that over that horizon. Um, we did see some declines and some uh, kind of moderation movement. And actually here on the, uh, if we look at sort of the long run trajectory here, you can see our previous peak of 2014 um, and then a little bit of a moderation, kind of a plateau. And then over the last two years, um, is where we've seen the growth um, coming back to where now, at least in nominal terms, above that, that previous 2014 high by just a, by just a small amount, not not rapidly above it. So a small increase in the nominal or the uh, not inflation adjusted value of farmland, but when you factor in inflation, that does make a difference. Even though inflation rates in recent years have been relatively low by historical standards, that still makes a difference, right? Yeah, in fact, uh, that's one of these we were checking um, in, in, in our to get our presentation together here is how does it sort of look in sort of real terms. 
Um, and so if we control for inflation, we're still below where we were in that 2014 peak. Um, and that's because, like you mentioned, we had a sort of moderate to inflation, but over the course of, you know, um, five to six years, that really adds up uh, to where, so we're still kind of below that that peak, um, but in, in nominal terms, it's at the all-time high. And just for clarity, Todd, when you make the adjustment from nominal values to real or inflation-adjusted values, what index do you use to make that adjustment? Yeah, uh, so economists, we when it's just the three of us, we can we like to fight about which is the best way to do it. I'm using CPI here, which is this broad-based measure, it's consumption-based measure, um, where the uh, the uh, it tracks sort of a, a portfolio of goods over time and how those prices go. So this is all U.S. consumers um, inflation. So um, I know Michael favors uh, the PCE. Um, and I've used GDP as well, but this, in this case, I'm using CPI. Yeah. Okay. So one of the interesting things about the survey is not only collecting the value information from the respondents, but also learning what they think the key drivers are and how those compare to the last couple of years. And so you've taken a look at that. Why don't you share that with us? Yeah. So we ask about 10 factors ranging from commodity prices, farm income, um, expectations about uh, export potential for commodities, farmers' liquidity, agricultural policy, uh, interest rates, another big driver. Um, and this year we found that all of them, all the respondents this year reported all of them having positive influence on land value. So the, the easiest way to think about is farmland is driven by a complex set of factors um, in terms of what ways you can earn income by owning it. Um, and in 2021, all of those factors were putting upward pressure rates. We had very low interest rates. Uh, the Fed cut interest rates again has kept them very low during the pandemic. So the cost of borrowing is low. Um, we had a growth in commodity prices and incomes. Um, export potential is, uh, is looking up. We've seen more export activity um, and uh, continued uh, expectation to see growth in exports. And so, and, and then ag, ag policy has been very accommodating. A lot of it, I think, with uh, through COVID, both on the household side and the USDA ag specific side, there were a number of policy payments um, and things related to lending that really helped farmers uh, out during this last sort of year and a half. And what basically that means is that on sort of all cylinders, we're, we're pushing farmland prices upward. And this is yeah. a real contrast to the last couple of years where we would have, you know, some things like income or trade that were pushing downward pressure. Um, but this year it's across the board positive. Yeah, that, that's what struck me when I look at the chart uh, that you put together and, and, and put in the report and on our slide deck here. But you, the fact that every single factor that you typically measure, respondents were saying it was giving you some upward pressure. And we'll talk about this more later, but that suggests that the rise in farmland values we've seen so far uh, is probably going to continue. Is that right? Uh, as long as those factors continue at the trajectory they're at, right? It's, it's always the uh, the caveat economists want to put on everything. But um, yeah, I think the other thing is it just, um, you know, it, it at least shows that the rate that we've, the, the rise we've seen this year is justified, right? It's justified by market fundamentals and what we would expect farmland prices to respond to. Um, but yeah, I do think it, it signals towards um, some expected, at least continued, continued growth, maybe not at the same rate, but uh, but positive growth. So, you know, one of the things that I like to look at, of course, and Michael and I typically do on our, our monthly webinars, what's going on with crop values and crop prices. When I look at 
land value increases and, and changes over time, they've obviously been driven pretty heavily here in the corn belt by what takes place with respect to both corn and soybean prices. And one of the things that I looked at with respect to corn prices uh, relative to your land value chart that you put together is the peak in land values in 2014, for example, occurred after the peak in corn prices was actually pretty well behind us, right? So corn prices peaked, I think, back in 2012 on an annual average basis, looking at U.S. prices, uh, the marketing year average of 689. That next year in 13, it dropped to 446 and dropped to 370 in 14. And 14 was actually the year that land values peaked. You look at soybean prices, the story is a little bit different because soybean prices uh, didn't decline quite as rapidly as what corn prices did. We had a pretty tight supply situation coming out of the 2012 drought, which probably influenced things quite a bit, and also very strong demand from China for soybeans. But still, in both cases, the peak in prices and commodity prices occurred before the peak in land value prices. How does that relate to history? Is that is that pretty typical as you look at the data, Todd? Yeah, I, I sometimes use the analogy when I talk to uh, in, in extension settings about farmland is sort of like a glacier. Farmland prices are sort of like a glacier. So commodity prices are moving constantly, right? All, all day long, every day. Uh, and it takes some amount of that price movement to give a signal to what you think your incomes are gonna do because it's not instant. And then we have to think about how our incomes are gonna evolve over you know multiple periods to really start to influence the land value. So land values is a little bit slow to respond to both downward and upward shifts in, in, um, in prices or, or commodity prices. So it's not like uh, if commodity prices shot up overnight that we'd expect land prices to immediately respond. So th there's information there, but it, but it comes through relatively slowly. And it, the reason I use the glacier as an example is it takes either a very strong force or a sustained force, right? So even when commodity price movements aren't that drastic, but if you can, have the small price movement that you're going to have confidence will continue for several years, that'll put upward pressure on land value as well. Good point. And so one of the factors that you mentioned in your, in your previous uh, table there with looking at the factors that people said were driving land values was interest rates. And Michael, I think you took a look at ag interest rates for both real estate and operating loans. And, you know, one of the interesting things about that is you go back to the 1980s and that those rates have been coming down almost, not quite, but almost continuously, right? That's certainly the case. I mean, if you go to the early 1980s, you were looking at interest rates that were that were 18%, 16 to 18%, uh, depending on whether you were talking about operating or real estate. Uh, they declined uh, in the early 1990s to closer to 10%, uh, and they've continued to decline since then. And and, and they're really, uh, really in the last year or two, they've, they've been lower than any time uh, during that whole period. It's, from 76 to, to 21. And so and so this is certainly a very important factor explaining the strength in land values. I want to talk a little bit about uh, crop prices and net returns, if I may, in addition to interest rates. Uh, you know, the interest rate is probably not going to change uh, all that much in the next year or two. We can debate that. Uh, but certainly given where the U.S. economy is, uh, you wouldn't expect the Fed to necessarily increase interest rates in the next few months. Uh, and so I think interest rates is going to be a low interest rates is going to be a positive factor related to land values, at, at least for the, the foreseeable future. Uh, net returns, on the other hand, uh, you know, could uh, could dampen uh, some some of the uh, the increases in land values that we saw the last year. Uh, perhaps it probably will increase next year. We'll talk more about that here in a bit, but maybe not double digit. Uh, 
Certainly, certainly uh, net returns uh, could be a little bit, little bit lower uh, going into 22. But I do want to comment on that uh, relationship between net return, uh, cash rent, and land value. I see at least a one-year lag. So consistent with what Todd was saying there, I see at least a one-year lag uh, between uh, net ret- what, what net return is doing and land values. For example, uh, the, the net income per acre really didn't drop uh, for crop producers in Indiana until 14. Uh, so 13 was a pretty good income. It was less than 12, uh, but net income per acre was pretty strong in 13. Uh, we, we Then we peaked in 14. Uh, when net income started dropping in 14, we saw a very large decline in 15. And so I, 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 think I, I usually see about a one-year lag there uh, between what net returns are doing and how cash rent and land values adjust. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, looking at these interest rates, I guess, you know, you tend to think there's not been a lot of movement in interest rates, but actually if you compare the real ag real estate loan rate in 2019 versus uh, 2020, for example, uh, in 2021, there's a significant change, about a point and a half, right? We were at about five and a half percent. Now, uh, what, closer to what, maybe four? And and one of the ways to portray that is to look at 10-year average interest rates and I, I did this recently, and I was somewhat surprised. I knew I knew this would be going down over time, but we uh, 2021, the 10-year average, looking at the previous 10 years, is is quite a bit lower than what it was even back in 18 and 19. And so it just emphasizes the importance of these low interest rates to supporting land values. You know, one one way to look at low interest rates supporting the land values is to compare it to what people could receive, for example, on a CD. And people that have cash are looking for things to invest in, and CD rates are extremely unattractive, and that makes farmland look just that much more attractive because of the dividend coming out. Is that right, Todd? Yeah, I, I mean that's one of the things, and we'll talk about this much later. But when you think about farmland as an investment, um, you know we're talking about the price changes in depreciation. We'll talk about cash rents in a little bit, but for those people that own farmland, uh, that's essentially two sources of of uh, potential return, right? So you have the appreciation of what the market value is changing the asset, but also the cash rental rate and in, in, uh, as a sort of percentage uh, return. So the other thing about interest rates, Michael, that you took a look at is inflation adjusted interest rates. And um, the fact that we've actually moved into negative territory when you adjust for inflation. Talk about that. Yeah, a little bit. This has been a long time since we've seen this. Uh, I, I calculated this from 1973 all the way to 2021, and it's been about 74, 75 uh, since we've seen a, a negative interest rate when you're looking at uh, uh, interest rates on, on farm real estate loans, uh, using some information from Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago and Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And so and so one of the factors that, that Todd had in his list uh, that was asked of survey participants was inflation. And so all I'm doing by looking at the real interest rate is, is trying to combine those two things. And what we're seeing here, in addition to these low interest rates, is inflation uh, popping back up. Uh, we haven't had inflation over 4%, uh, again, using the PCE. I, I prefer the PCE uh, deflator. But we haven't, had interest, we haven't had inflation over 4% since 1990. All indications in, in 2021 is we're going to exceed 5%. Uh, we're already at, at 2.5% just with the 6 six months uh, uh, from, from January to June. And so most economists are thinking, you know, perhaps 5% or even 6% inflation. You combine those low interest rates with 5% inflation and you and you start getting a negative real interest rate. And of course that's very positive, uh, you know, for land values. 
Having said that, uh, should somebody investing in land land today or buying land today count on that negative interest rate? Of course not. Uh, you, you typically think about interest rates in a more uh, long-term fashion, but nevertheless, uh, it is an important factor impacting you know, impacting uh, land values currently. Yeah, and I think the your, your point about sort of saying like don't treat this like permanent is is a good part because in addition to the interest rates, there's also the inflation piece, right? So if you look at um, the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee that after their last set uh, meeting to discuss discount rates, um, you know the, the chair of the Fed was very much pointing towards you know there's a belief that a lot of the inflation that we're seeing is transitory, meaning that it's a brief blip based on uh, supply factors in terms of markets uh, with with slowdowns in production or trade related to the to the, to the coronavirus. And that he doesn't think it'll be inflation that'll stick around for a long time. So um, this 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 short blip into the negative interest rates might be uh, it, may, it may be short, right? I don't I don't know how long we'll be. Here. Yeah, there's certainly some uncertainty there. I, I think some economists would argue. Uh, some of the comments that I read would argue that it might not not might not be that short. Uh, but but nevertheless, it, I, uh, you know perhaps a year or two, and and then then if inflation goes back to where it has been two percent, uh, you know this this. Uh, this short period of uh, this this period we're seeing with negative real interest rates uh, could be relatively short. Uh, well, and, and even even if it's a short period of a year or two, that can be uh, pretty painful to experience. If yes, depending on how how rampant it is across sort of, you know, your think about it just from a farm perspective, you know, how much is inflation going to affect all of your of your inputs and your input yes. purchasing? Um, so it even if it's short, it can be it can uh, farmers can have withstood like brief uh, challenging periods before, but it's it's never fun to do so. Right? Yeah. So the other factor that you took a look at, Michael, was uh, liquidity. And you might want to explain the, your definitions there a little bit. One of the, there's several different ways to measure liquidity, but to keep this very contemporaneous, uh, what I'm what I'm using to, to to talk about liquidity is some uh, survey done with the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago that looks at loan demand and loan repayment. And so what I'm what I'm uh, indicating here, if, if if loan demand has been dropping rapidly in the last couple quarters, and loan repayment has been increasing rapidly in the last two quarters, and so I'm using that information to suggest that liquidity has improved dramatically. Uh, the fact that people are, are repaying loans means that they have the money or the wherewithal uh, to repay their loans. The fact that they're not demanding uh, more loans compared to uh, you know the previous year, for example, means means that they have liquidity. They have working capital there. They don't need to borrow as much from an operating standpoint. And so and so I found that very interesting when uh, when Todd was talking about all those factors that are positive towards land. It's been a while since liquidity has been a positive factor. Uh, liquidity has been very tight uh, in, in, in production agriculture since since about 2014, 2015. And so this is a dramatic change uh, and, and, and really does uh, create more optimism with regard to buying land. Again, I th as you think about what might happen over the course of the next year, that's another positive, right? Definitely. I think you're looking at least one, one more year of, of, of of, of, of increases in liquidity and, and then if things level out, let's say things level out, that means liquidity would stay about where it was in, in, in 2022. That would still be very positive compared to what we went through from 2014 to 2019, where we saw some pretty serious deterioration in, in, in working capital on, on farms. 
So Todd, you mentioned at the outset that you collect information that allows you to talk about regional variation in farmland, not just the state level information from the state of Indiana. So share with us some of those regional results. Yeah, so uh, what I have here is the, is we've broken the, the, the state gets broken into six regions. So, um, and the clusters of counties, um, we usually see the best numbers sort of come in at the West central and central regions of the state. Um, this year, we've seen it, particularly on the high end, uh, we've seen a lot of growth in the southwest portion and the southwest uh, high, high productivity land is now where we see sort of the highest value per acre. So if you think about it, uh, and I'm looking at your percentage changes here, the percentage changes and for example, southwest Indiana are quite large. Uh, top quality land in 2021 was up almost 28%, average quality land up 20%. Um, you compare that to the central part of the state, central part of the state, top quality was up about 16%. So that's a pretty big gap between what was going on in those two regions. But the other way you like to look at farmland values is the value per bushel of estimated uh, corn productivity, right? Yeah. And, and there, yeah, and those, uh, it, it, it held relatively sort of stable across those regions. Um, Maybe you could say that Southwest is kind of catching up to the other parts of the state. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of sort of um, return per eight or return per bushel of corn produced, um, they're held relatively close in with the uh, with the other productive regions of the state. So what, what was that number? So if you think about um, price as a function of, of corn yield, how many dollars per bushel? The I think it was 48, Michael, do you? 48 to 50 would capture central, west central, and southwest. Uh, the other regions would be a little bit lower than that. But, uh, uh, you know, the, it, the, the, but the main point here is is, is the southwest is similar uh, to west central and central. And so it, 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 in my mind, that means that things aren't necessarily out of line uh, in, in southwest. I mean, it, as Todd said, it, it appears that they was just catching up uh, to perhaps west central and central. Yeah, and I think that's also kind of a useful thumb rule for our viewers to, to think about in terms of uh, looking at an individual property and thinking about the value of that property. If you've got a good grip on the productivity, you can use that dollars per bushel of corn yield as a way to, to equilibrate across properties, right? Yeah, the, the other way- Landowner like and, and you don't know the corn yield, that's something you definitely want to ask your operator. You know, what is, what is your crop insurance corn yield? Because that is one way to do a back of the envelope calculation not only for cash rent, but also for land value. Yeah, and the other one is thinking about commodity prices at the same time, essentially, you know, how many years to pay off, um, you know, just on the revenue side, at least, uh, about how many years of revenue would it take to capture the, the purchase of a farmland? Good point. So one of the questions you ask people is, what do you think is going to happen to farmland values in the next six months, right? So you've got some information, what happened from December to June of this year, and then you ask them, okay, your, and your survey was conducted in June. So then you ask them, okay, what do you think is going to happen from June of this year to December of 2021? And share those results with us, Todd. Yeah, so uh, they expect the growth to continue, um, but at sort of a moderate pace. In fact, I, I was mentioning this earlier when we were, the three of us were talking, but I have some work with a graduate student now that we recently are working through publication. Um, but looking at these expectations over time, going back to the 70s, and generally speaking, respondents, farmland experts, if you ask them about, you know, sort of what's going to happen in the future, 
they get the direction right, but they're always uh, sort of a little bit more cautious, right? So they don't want to uh, say like, oh, we're going to get double digit again, right? It'll be, even if you think there's going to be double digit, people usually kind of respond of, uh, you know, high, but not crazy high. So um, it, it's, it shows that there's positivity. There's uh, there's belief that what we've seen over the last six months is going to continue. Um, but again, with the idea that they're, they're always a little bit more cautious about what's going to happen in, in the future. Yeah, so those rates of uh, increase that they're expecting, which are roughly 4%, um, wouldn't be surprising then based on history to actually exceed that, especially when you think about the fact that people were indicating that virtually all the factors were positive, right? Yeah, I mean, essentially we had, you know, over the last six months from December to June, um, you know, closer to 8%, so almost twice of what they're expecting, right? So they're expecting to sort of like have it again, but in half. I don't, I don't. So the Purdue land value survey is, you know, a really good information source for farmland values here in Indiana. And some other states do something similar. I know Iowa does something similar. Those results will be released later in the fall. But USDA publishes some numbers as well, so they collect some information. There's some differences in terms of how USDA collects data versus what you do and maybe what Iowa State does. So talk to us a little bit about what USDA does and how that differs from what you do in, in the Purdue Land well, Value Survey. Yeah, there's a couple of key differences. One uh, is that the USDA surveys farmers, so they do a whole bunch of surveys in the summertime around uh, planting and production and yield estimates. And in, in one of those surveys, they ask about land values and cash rents. So they're asking farmers about what they believe to be the market value. Um, and then they have a very complex weighting and survey sampling techniques. And just to make sure, particularly those yield estimates that are coming out of those surveys are as accurate as possible. Um, and so we're getting sort of an, uh, a, uh, weighted average of these farmers' opinions, and where we're asking sort of active market participants. And so, you know, I, I've done some research in the past that shows that, you know, if the farmers are in areas with low transaction volumes, they're not as informed about what the current prices are in the marketplace, right? So just if, if you're able to see prices change, you'll have a better idea what your land is worth. Um, and so that puts a little bit of a wedge there. The other thing is the USDA, they split their land values into two different um uh, categories, one being farm real estate. So that's land plus any buildings or improvements. And then they also have both crop and pasture land. So I'm showing here both crop land and the USDA farm real estate number for Indiana. And then what we get from the average quality for the survey at the statewide. Um, so the other thing too is we split things into categories in terms of productivity. So we have that top average poor where the USDA reports just a statewide average. So your numbers coming off the survey are, tend to be, at least in recent years, at a premium to what USDA is coming up with, right? Yeah, and, and, and that's sort of true also, I think, with what we see out of Iowa State um, and other places that survey land values. Um, ours tend to also be uh, also a little bit more dynamic. So they tend to rise a little bit higher, but that also means they tend to fall a little bit more when prices are coming down. And, you know, I think it makes sense. You're, you're focusing your survey, and I think the Iowa State survey is similar. You're focusing on people that are actively engaged in the farm real estate industry on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week, -week, month to month kind of basis. And not all farmers are really active in the farmland market. So there's a difference from the information set there, right? That really probably explains the difference. Yeah, although the USDA gets the all the uh, resources of a USDA survey. So 
that's true, but they also get a lot more respondents. Um, and so hopefully the sort of very informed and the uninformed, they kind of uh, sort of meet in the middle at those, at those big state level averages. Um, so we, we have a, we, we have, you know, very different pools that have relative strengths and, and weaknesses, I think. Of, so one way to look at it is the difference in the absolute levels of the values. And those are clearly different, yeah. but what about the year to year change, the percentage change, they look fairly similar as I look at your chart. Yeah, they're fairly similar other than I would say ours are a little bit more variable. So our, our, when prices are going up, we tend to show more of an up. When prices go down, we tend to show more of a down than the USDA. The USDA, I, I always sort of say the USDA is sort of like smoothed out um, over time as a way to sort of think about it. So it gives you just a really good trajectory. The other thing too that's important to keep in mind is that when we think about real estate um, and farm real estate, farmland, there's a difference between sort of the stock of land, like the stock of the asset and the flow of what's being transacted on the market, right? And so farmers often know really well sort of the stock value of their land because they use it for collateral with lending or making intergenerational transfer plans, right? So they have an idea of sort of the, the, the stock value. But when things are happening in the markets, uh, sometimes prices will capture additional information that will kind of move it away, it, it, which, which is make it even more complicated. Another way to say it, sort of economists would say, is that the, the the land that gets sold is non-random, right? There's something about that land and how it's owned or potential uses for it that make it more likely to be sold. And that's different than when you just ask farmers about all of the land. So they tend to have a good idea of what their land is worth on the balance sheet, but that doesn't necessarily translate to what we would see in the marketplace if you listed it for sale. Yeah, that's a good point. And one we don't often think about when farmland sells, there's a reason why it's sold, right? Yeah. The, 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 the joke I often use uh, when I talk to students about it is I ask everybody to raise their hand if they have a sibling. And then I say, well, how many of you would want to share a couple million dollars with your sibling and talk to them twice a year about what to do with it? And everybody puts their hand down. I said, well, that's why farmland sells, right? Like it's, it's at some point it's just easier to say, let's just split this up. I don't want to keep working with you. So, um, but certainly what you're talking about, Todd, explains why the USDA series is, 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 is less volatile. Yeah. I think that's why we get that. Sort of just, yeah. Right. So a lender is not going to change what they think of the collateral value of your land quite as often as uh, the market would when you try to put it up for sale or auction. So you took a look at uh, values in uh, Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa, which is the I states that people always like to kind of make some comparisons. And this is based on the USDA data. So you're comparing apples to apples here. Yeah, that's the other advantage of the USDA because they do it everywhere, right? So we can see how Indiana compares to uh, to neighboring states or starts in other parts of the country. Um, and, and once again, um, as the case has been for 20 years or so, it's uh, Illinois and Iowa duking it out for the highest value per acre. Um, and Indiana lagging just behind there, um, but but showing you know very similar pattern in terms of um, where everywhere is up um, about the same percentage change. Um, but now uh, Illinois just edges out Iowa in the value per acre. So and I, I used to live in Illinois, and that's a, a lot of Illinois and Iowa farmers have a kind of bit of a rivalry there. Right? So. so looking at those percentage changes, what you know you were showing double digit, low double digits for Indiana, what between twelve and fourteen percent, depending on the quality. Looking at the USDA data, what percentage changes are they showing for those states? Do you remember? I don't remember off the top of my head. I don't have it. I wanted to say it was. Uh, I want to say it was around eight. I'd have to double check. Yeah, so, so a little don't bit. Don't quote less. me on that. This is recorded forever. 
<laughs> so a little bit less though than what you yeah, were showing. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit muted compared to what we're showing. Yeah, consistent um, with the idea that that uh, the Purdue Land Value Survey is a little more volatile than than the yeah. USDA survey. Looking at a survey, Jim. Looking at a survey of Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. I was share sharing this information with you guys earlier today when we were practicing or talking about this talking about this this uh, webinar. Uh, they showed that. Uh, uh, Illinois and Indiana were up 12% in the second quarter compared to the year before, and Iowa was up 18%. So I think that's very interesting uh, for, for the, the audience to digest, is it, it looks like things are, are, are uh, happening in Iowa, or there, there's larger increases in Iowa uh, than there is in, in Illinois and Indiana. And, and if you go back in time, uh, that's, not infer- that's not unusual. Uh, to see see a little bit more volatility in Iowa uh, compared to Illinois and Indiana. Yeah, in fact, if if you you know read the stuff that ag economists write for each other in our in our research, um, I mean, even in like the 1980s, Iowa was the they had the, they had steeper increases in the 70s and and farther uh, declines in the 80s than than in neighboring states. Um, so I, it's been around for a while that way. Yeah, as Michael sort of mentioned, there's a, there's a lot of places where you know, people like me that stay very active in, in studying farmland markets. Um, so the USDA does surveys, uh, a bunch of uh, universities, but also the Federal Reserve Banks um, track by surveying uh, agricultural bankers. And so they, they also are a good source of information about sort of what's going on in land prices. So let's just kind of summarize the results, Todd. A new record high in 2021, at least in nominal values, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we have a new record high. Again, I, I put that nominal part in there because if we, if we account for inflation, then I'll have to go back and do Michael's uh, measure of inflation, see if it still holds. Uh, but um, yeah, so uh, we're still a little bit behind where we were in 2014, but what it isn't nominal value new high. Um, and, and really the big thing there, I think, is that when we ask uh, our respondents, you know, what's driving, how are these different factors putting pressure on land values? They're all saying up. Um, the income portions are what really, I think, jumps out the most, had the strongest response. Um, commodity prices, both in crop and livestock, um, but also just expected returns, liquidity, uh, interest rates. And so, and, and they expect that to keep going. Um, so, you know, these, these aren't uh, things that we, they expect to sort of diminish, at least over the course of the rest of 2021. And so, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll find out in 2022. Yeah. So the other part of the survey that generates a lot of interest on the part of uh, people here in Indiana and elsewhere around the country is, uh, what are you finding out about cash rental rates? Yeah, and uh, I mean, cash rental rates are, are always tough, right? So I, I, I often joke uh, that if you get tired of listening to a farmer talk, just ask him about cash rents. That's the easiest way to get the conversation to end. Uh, and so it's, it's really hard to collect really good information. The USDA has some... Uh, cash rental rate uh, information, but we also collected in our survey again, following that sort of top average quality, top average and poor quality. Um, and we ask about the the counties that the, these respondents work in, um, and they're up again uh, this year. So, uh, but up at a smaller percentage change. So around you know somewhere between four to five percent um, is where we've seen the growth. And so cash rents are up, but not quite as much as land values were. Yeah, in fact, uh, Michael, you've taken a look at that from kind of a long-term perspective. You worked on that with a graduate student a while back, that relationship between changes in cash rental rates and farmland values. That's not unusual, right? 
no, it's not unusual. And, and cash rent is, is, is slightly above uh, long-term inflation uh, rate, uh, about 3.7% for cash rent, about 3.3% for inflation. But land value, on the other hand, uh, is 5.4%. Uh, that difference, 1.7% between uh, uh, increase in land values and increase in cash rent may not seem like much, but over time, that really that really accumulates into a, a pretty large change. Uh, so, so bottom line, uh, land values have been increasing, uh, you know, more than than cash rent for a long time. Yeah, and it's uh, it's worth pointing out too on our survey that although cash rent's up, it's still below what it, it also peaked in 2014 in our survey, just like land values. Um, we're still below that by a little bit, not not much, five dollars or so an acre, I believe. Um, but again, in real terms. It's much lower than what we saw um, in in 2014. Um, so um, yeah, it's always a it's always a paradox uh, thinking about this. Like working with you mentioned working with graduate students, but you know how much is it that land values cause cash rental rates, and how much do cash rental rates cause land values? The, there's a there's a flow of information back and forth there. Um, so it's it's pretty tricky to figure out. So. It's always of interest to look at the regional cash rental rates here in Indiana. And as you look across the regions, there are some significant differences in those cash rental rates, right? Yeah, it's it's highly variable. Um, it's more variable sort of on the dollars per bushel than, than what we saw with, with land values. Um, and of course with cash rents, it's the tricky part is it's, you know, it's a contract between two people. Um, for for the use of the land and so you have both sort of landowner and uh tenant sort of objectives there um, so we do see a lot of variability in terms of how things are shaking out in these sort of localized markets um, but again across the state cash rent is up so it's just a matter of sort of how much is it up so as you look at the regions of course the central part of the state especially the west central part of the state yields the highest cash rental rates and i Looking at your results, um, the top quality land in in West Central Indiana uh, averaged out to a little over three hundred dollars an acre, right? Yeah, and we always sort of think about these kind of uh, every twenty five dollars or so cutoffs, right? So cr crossing that three hundred dollar threshold, I think, uh, definitely would get people's attention. It's interesting, uh, you know, one of the things about surveying cash rents and presenting this information is. Uh, guaranteed that half of the audience will be excited and the other half will hate you, right? So uh, it, it depends on which half they are, but uh, when when rents are going up or down, someone's uh, always wanting to push back and tell me it should go the other way. And, you know, I was looking at your rates uh, on the regions and we were talking earlier about the rapid increase in land values in Southwest Indiana. Um, those cash rental rates, the top quality land in Southwest Indiana, isn't far behind West Central, right? It came in at what, 288? Yeah, which is also, uh, as an economist, that's a good sign. That means that markets are working as they should be, right? So you want the same things that are driving cash rents to be what's driving your land values. One of the things that's very important to point out here, Todd, maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not, but the, but the top category in the different regions is, is, is tied to a corn yield. And the corn yield in West Central for the top productivity ground is higher. Uh, and so one of the things I always tell landlords, if, 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 you, if you're thinking about what your land should rent for, one of the things to calculate uh, is, is look at your corn yield uh, and then use the information published in the survey, extremely valuable, that looks at the, looks at the rent per bushel. Yeah, that, that is a good point too. And we and we ask the respondents, you know, sort of 
we asked them about the the corn yield in their area, and then and we asked them about the land values and cash rents in their area. So it's it's um, it should be sort of a match to sort of what's going on in that local space. Because I mean, essentially, if we didn't capture that, that's the biggest thing, right? Is yield, uh, particularly on the cash rental side. I know with land values, there's other things productivity or development potential and that can kind of push things around, but, but cash rents really should be at least, you know, sort of in theory driven by what's the productivity, what are the costs, what kind of return can I get from, from, uh, from using this land? So the other thing people like to take a look at, and I know you like to take a look at Todd is what's the cash rental rate relative to land value. You took a look at that going all the way back to 1980. Yeah, it's important for a couple of reasons. One is it's sort of a measure of return, right? So the the easiest way to make money from owning farmland is to rent it to someone else, right? And so it gives you an idea of what's the sort of percentage return that I could get from from owning farmland. Um, but then the other thing is it it's sort of like we've been talking about already. It gives us an idea of how land values and cash rent are moving. And so we've seen it. You know, going back to the 1980s, we've seen this relationship decline, meaning that the percentage return for uh, renting it out has been declining. But that also means that the rental rate has been growing slower than the than the land values. And so it had been sort of hanging around three the last few years. Um, we're now at 2.8, which is close enough to three, I think, not to uh, split hairs over it. But so. You know, looking at the data that you presented in, in your report, I think uh, it's really interesting to see what happened in the 1980s when land values declined sharply. Those rental rates didn't decline anywhere near as sharply as what the land values did. And that gave a relatively high cash rent to land value ratio. In recent years, it's been the opposite, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the... That's always sort of the trick, I think, that landlords and tenants are are kind of arguing about, which is, um, you know, how much should we bid what's going on uh, things into the land values, right? So, um, you know, as land values have gone up, um, farmers, I think, and, and landlords and tenants have kind of worked together to kind of keep land value or cash rental rates kind of relatively stable, I guess, for lack of a better term, right? So they, we haven't seen these these giant upticks. Like it, it hasn't gone up 14% over the last year, right? It's gone up 4%. Um, so it's just, it's a little bit uh, a little bit more stable, but that does, that does sort of also signal from the landowner's perspective, sort of less return per acre um, than, I think that's also why people keep farming instead of just always renting, right? And the other interesting thing, of course, about this is if you compare that cash rent to land value ratio, one of the things you can compare that with, for example, is somebody that has cash available to invest is what could they earn on a CD, for example. Yeah. And 2.8 doesn't sound great, but when you compare it to CD rates, it looks pretty good. Yeah. I mean, 2.8 is much better than uh, one half of a percent or whatever it probably is. Particularly given that you're holding an asset that appreciates over time. And so that's the thing to always remember is over a long period of time, the the, the growth rate in land values has, has been pretty good. And we'll talk more about that about that later, Todd. Yeah. So, Michael, you've taken a look at the same kind of information, except you like to flip it around. And so, for folks that like to look at it in maybe a slightly different way, and your your series goes all the way back to 1960, you might explain your price to rent ratio. 
Yeah, the, the, the reason why we're flipping this around is we want to care, compare it to the price earnings ratio that is used for stocks. And so, uh, so we get some people that hold both stocks and, and land. We want to, we want to make the, we make it comparable with stocks. And so that's why we do that. Uh, and it's the same thing uh, Todd talked about uh, from, from 2007 to 2014 in particular, land values were increasing dramatically more uh, than cash rents. I mean, it was substantial uh, when you're looking at the an annualized percentage uh, for cash rents and land values. Land values were increasing at a, at a much faster rate. And what that did is it increased the price to rent ratio. Uh, and we could argue here or debate here uh, why that was the case, why we saw that price, price to uh, cash rent ratio increase. I think it's very logical. I think one of the big things that was going on here uh, is the combination of low inflation. So inflation was kind of out of the picture, uh, but low interest rates. Uh, we saw interest, like we talked about previously, interest rates continue to decline, uh, you know, uh, uh, from the early 2000s, even before that, uh, until today. Uh, and so, and so uh, the reason why we're seeing a higher price to rent ratio today, uh, why it's historically high, is the low interest rates. And as long as those interest rates stay relatively low, I think we're going to have a, a price to rent ratio that's substantially above uh, the long run average since 1960 of 20. So we keep pointing out that low interest rates have had a positive influence on land values. The risk then going forward is that we lose that, right? Yes, that is the risk. And that's one of the concerns, if you follow the macro people, I think that's one of the concerns people have with what's taking place here with inflation and what the Fed's doing. At what point in time will the Fed have to raise interest rates? And at that point, we lose that support for the farmland value market, right? Well, I, I think I, the, the way I you always tell landowners and you know, when, I'm, when I'm talking to landowners is, is it's pretty easy to explain what's going on with cash rent. It's tied very closely uh, to, to the net return or net income per acre, very correlated uh, with, with what's going on on the ground in terms of net return. Land is much, much more difficult. That's why Todd had 10 factors uh, in impacting land values in the survey. There's a lot of different factors that impact land, but that interest rate is one of the most important ones. And so, and so if you're a landowner, you have to watch more than what's just going on with cash rents. Uh, if you're trying to explain your land values, you've got inflation, you've got uh, liquidity, you've got interest rate, you've got all these other factors that you need to, to keep track of. Yeah. And I think the way you ask the question is, uh, I mean, we're all economists. And so you ask it a little bit as, as a loaded way as economists would, but uh, you know, we we are basically at the at the bottom where we can take interest rates. They can't go lower um, in nominal terms. And so the question then is becomes how long can we keep it here before we have to eventually raise it, right? So I think we also all sort of know that rates are going to go up at some point. Um, you know, prior to COVID, it looked like we were going to be in a period of escalating um, uh, short run rates for a while, um, and so. I think it's a matter of sort of when will this come? And I think that's another thing too that sort of that affects this ratio of cash rents and land values, which is how long can we expect these things to get permanent, get bid into the land value, right? So it's not just where interest rates currently are, as you mentioned, but where we think they're going to be, you know, typical farmland owner will own that asset for 10, 30 years or so, right? Um, and so they're thinking about, okay, well, over this course of time, how is how are interest rates going to affect the value of this asset? Um, That's now. why when I when you know I talk to people, I, I usually say use a longer run interest rate is, is in addition to the current current rate to, to think about where interest rates might be going. 
you know, use a look what look what the five year interest rate is. Look what the ten year interest rate is, and and maybe use those in some of your computations because uh, just because it's low in 2021, like you said, doesn't mean it's going to be low in 2025. Uh, and this is a very very long run investment. Uh, you 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 don't you don't buy land one day and sell it a week later like you would a stock. Uh, and so where that interest rate is going long term, or what your expectation uh, is in terms of interest rates, really matters. So Todd, you also took a look at cash runner rates from the USDA, again, comparing Indiana to Illinois and Iowa. What were those results like? Um, so it interestingly shakes out just a little bit different in kind of that rank order that Iowa has a little bit higher cash rental rate on average than the state of Illinois. Um, but once again, a little bit of a gap there between those two I states and Indiana. Um, again, all the things I mentioned about how USDA collects uh, land values also holds true with cash rental rates and that these are surveys of farmers, of tons of farmers. Um, and so they they sort of get to be kind of smoothed out a little bit. So that's why they, uh, at least especially here on the scale that I'm presenting um, today in the, in the webinar portion of it, um, is that it, they're relatively flat um, in terms of not a lot of activity sort of up and down. So Michael, you've taken a look at cash rental rates relative to estimated uh, net returns to land using the simulated farm that you've developed that's kind of based uh, loosely speaking on, on White County, Indiana productivity and, and cost. Uh, talk us through that a little bit. Yes, I mean, the net return to land was pretty strong in, in, in 2020 compared to cash rent. Uh, net return to land of, of about $330 compared to a cash rent for average productivity land in West Central uh, that was closer to 250 and so the gap is important there that return to land uh you know 70 dollars higher uh than the than the cash rent in 21 uh that difference is closer to 140 dollars uh and and in 22 it gets it, the, the net return to land is more similar uh, to expected cash rent but the important point is is we had two years in a row there 20 and 21 where the net return to land was strong uh compared to cash rent that creates upward pressure on cash rents. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Um, you know, typically, it typically, as a rule of thumb, uh, you know, based on the research that I did with a student, uh, and I've updated it uh, since then, uh, if, if net return to land increases $100, that translates into a short-term change in cash rents of, of, of $10. Uh, and, and it's not $100 by any stretch. Uh, cash rents are much, much smoother than net return to land. But nevertheless, cash rents move. Uh, and so you can explain uh, the increase in 21 uh, using that formula. Uh, the increase, the, the higher uh, net return in 20 uh, translated into that, that higher cash rent. Uh, looking at 22, uh, I, I can use that relationship uh, to, to uh, guess, guesstimate, uh, it, it is a guesstimate. Uh, I wouldn't call it a projection. It's more of a guesstimate that uh, cash rent could easily increase five to ten percent. Uh, I think the five percent is kind of a, a low estimate because I think inflation is going to be five percent. Uh, and so, I, and, you know, with these strong net returns, I would expect uh, an increase in cash rent more than inflation. That's why I put that band uh, of five to ten percent for twenty-two. Yeah, so on the chart, you've got that shown at, at 275 and 22 versus 262 and, and 21. And that's only a 5%. That's that's being uh, conservative. Yeah, so it could easily exceed that. Todd, do you agree? Um, I think Michael lays out a rate reasonable case. I think the other thing key, key here is when I think about inflation, 
Um, so we, as economists, we talk about inflation. We kind of all know inflation, but just to be clear for everybody that's following along, what, what we're talking about specifically is all of the costs of your inputs will be higher for the same amount of input, right? So, and we see that already in things like fertilizer, but also especially in equipment and machinery, um, you know, there's all this talk about the chip shortage and how that's affecting cars. Um, so pickup truck assemblies are way down. Um, and as Mike sort of, Michael alluded to earlier, you know, when we have periods of um, high liquidity and it's a time to kind of reinvest and put some of that money back into the farm. And so uh, updating some of those uh, inputs and stuff will, uh, will be more expensive to do so. Um, so it's tricky because part of me thinks, well, if there's high inflation, we should we should hopefully be able to negotiate rents down a little bit because our expenses are much higher. Um, but also all of the landlord's expenses are probably also going to be higher as well. Um, and yeah, so, from an operator perspective, from an operator perspective, this is this is kind of a difficult situation because I've calculated break evens that we, we presented that in, in last Friday's webinar, a break evens for corn and soybeans, both up at least eight to 10%. Uh, and that's just a guesstimate. They could be higher than that. Uh, and, and so you're seeing, just like you suggest, Todd, you're seeing some some increases in, in prices paid uh, for for, uh, for for farm input, particularly for crop producers. And, and that's one of the reasons why uh, the return in 22 does not look near as good as 21. It's not only that the prices are lower, if you look at uh, uh, futures prices for late 22, it's also the fact that that, that costs are increasing. Yeah, I mean, we all take nominal dollars and go out and consume and buy things. Uh, and so in an inflationary period where those things are going up, then then both the landlord and tenant are going to have, you know, if they're wanting to sort of keep their lifestyle constant, uh, there's, there's going to be some real odds, I think, or there's going to be some real pressure on both sides about what do we do about this? How much can we push this cost increase onto the landowner? Um, and, and want to try to, what I mean by that is bidding the land, the cash rents down, um, because of other expenses. Um, but yeah, I don't, it'll be, I I would like to be the fly on a lot of walls, uh, this fall to figure (laughs) out how these. One of the reasons I worry about inflation, probably more than someone that's, that's 20, 30 years younger than me. What are you trying to say here? What are you trying to say? It, it, no, I'm just not saying you, Todd. But one of the reasons why I worry about inflation a lot is 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 the uncertainty uh, related to this making decisions when you don't know what inflation is going to be. It was easier to make decisions in the last 10 to 15, 20 years when you knew inflation was going to be one to three percent. That you know that's not a very big band. We're not dealing with one to three percent for the next year or two, or even the next five years. I would argue, and it makes it much much more difficult. Uh, to negotiate cash rents and make other decisions, um, yeah. purchasing land, purchasing machinery, uh, and and so on, and so and so that's one of the reasons why I I worry a lot about about this inflation is it it does make decision making much more difficult. Yeah, and, and we've been talking just about the input side, but it also makes a big difference on the output side. Yeah. When you've got bins full of grain, um, an inflationary period, high inflation changes what you think about sort of allocating that over time right so uh yeah the the uncertainty i i I hope it stays at my lifetime average of of predictable and reasonable but uh we'll we'll find out in the future as we move move Uh, jim what's your thoughts uh pull you into this conversation 
I'm probably not quite as uh, negative as you are with respect to high inflation rates, but but I do can share the concern that given the level of cash that we've pumped into the economy on behalf of the Fed, um, you know, the, the broad definition of inflation is is uh, too many dollars chasing too few goods. And that's clearly what's going on right now. Um, the question I think really is, is the too few goods a function of the disruptions related to COVID? Um, and that's really what the Fed's been arguing, that when that gets straightened out, we won't have the too few goods problem facing us and, and we'll see inflation come back down. I'm skeptical that it's going to come down as much as they think. And so I do think we're looking at higher inflation than we've seen in the recent past for the next several years. Well, uh, I, I also think to your point, I think there are a lot of things that are happening because of COVID right now um, that maybe some companies and firms and individuals will realize like, oh no, I'm not going back to what was before, right? And so maybe, uh, you know, thinking about different uh, product mixes that companies put out and they realize like, oh, you know, we never really made money with that thing. Anyway, we're not going to turn that one back on, right? Or uh, I'm like, I'm not going back to the office all day, every day, five days a week anymore. I realize how good it is to be home once in a while, right? So um, th there's a lot of puzzles there. And so how much of it, it's always hard to tell how much is inflation in real time, right? It's much easier to measure after the fact um, versus how much is sort of disruptions and product mix changes and, and yeah, so we'll see. Which is also why we have all these different measures of inflation because it is hard to measure, right? Yeah. The, the definition is easy. The, the measurement process is not easy. And that's, that's the big challenge. You like to talk about expectations, Todd. My guess is the, the inflationary expectations is a pretty wide band right now. That's the way I'd like to put it. I'm hoping that the Fed's right. And this is, this is, uh, this is going to be short term, but, but there's a pretty big band around what inflation expectations uh, are, are, are going to be here for the next year uh, to five years. Yeah. You know, and I, I read a lot of the academic literature about inflation expectations. And one of the things that's sort of scary in a recent paper I read just the last week or two uh, is that even when you teach people about what inflation is and what it has been and what the Fed is targeting for inflation and what their views are, uh, they only kind of keep those lessons in mind for a few months and then kind of forget them again, right? So um, I think the other thing is, I mean, it's hard for economists to understand and parse out exactly what inflation is and how it'll work. Uh, it's really hard for just consumers and, and producers out there in the marketplace and uh, yeah, it's it's tricky. We'll, we'll we'll see. This might be the next great uh, economic puzzle for all of us to spend our time studying. So, so let's just kind of summarize our cash rent results. You mentioned that earlier. You know, cash rents increased by three point nine to four point six percent. That's based on differences in land quality, right? Yep, and and it also varies around the state by region. So, uh, if you want to see where it is in a particular part of Indiana for certain land quality, um, it's all there in the report. So. Um. So one of the things people like to think about is farmland as an investment versus alternative investments. And you've spent some time on that, as has Michael. Um, let's talk about those results a little bit. Yeah, so I, um, you know, so we have this PAER that we put out the survey. Uh, I have a couple of different sort of more researchy pieces that'll be uh, kind, of, um, kind of interesting things I've been working on with graduate students. Uh, and so one of the things is, 
sort of how do we compare farmland to other investments? So um, we'll talk today about just a couple of like sort of, you know, equities or like stock prices, right? So think about S&P 500 or things like bonds, which you can either get through the treasury or corporate bonds. Um, and then you think about farmland. The big takeaway is that over most periods, farmland kind of sits in between the two of those. So you can get a higher return often by investing in stocks. But the challenge is that they're so variable. You're taking a lot of risk. Um, so if, uh, depending on your risk tolerance, how much you're willing to weigh that sort of risk to reward. Um, whereas when you look at things like bonds, they're lower return, but it's a written contract, what you'll what you learn at the end of that, of that period for the most part, right? So they're, they're much more stable. So if you're very risk averse, you just buy bonds, right? Like it's the, it's even safer than just putting cash under your mattress. Like I suspect Michael does, uh, you know, and then, uh, but farmland sort of sits in between the two of those. And the other thing that we kind of trace out in this article is if you think about farmland, just as an appreciation, what is the price change? That's very different than if you factor in this cash rent because cash rent in a lot of ways, is like a dividend that a stock gives you, right? So we have the appreciation rate is the asset value changes, but each year you get some sort of payment. And there are a number of years where that that cash rental payment is what really keeps the value positive, right? Where we can see um, stagnant to, to declining uh, appreciation rates. Um, and so farmland kind of sits right in that middle. And we, we've looked at it over uh, different horizons from all the way going back to, I think 1980 or 1990 in this uh, this article. Um, and so we report sort of the mean, what's your average, so what's the expected percentage change in the value of that asset over that horizon? So what's the average amount that it changes per year? The standard deviation, which is sort of how does that average move around? What's the sort of dispersion and outcomes? Um, and then our coefficient of variation, which is basically how much of that risk are you being compensated for by having a higher return? Um, and so that sort of tra trace it out over time, farmland is sort of always kind of set in between uh, equities markets and bonds in terms of that risk and return. Um, so often has uh, sort of right in the middle, both in terms of risk and return. Um, other than we have some periods where things like when we factor in sort of the financial crisis around the Great Recession or uh, the Great Recession of around 2008 to 11, really you know push down equities and really push down uh bond rates we didn't see that as much in agriculture it was a very good time for the ag sector so outside of those couple big periods just generally speaking farmland kind of sits in the middle there and then you also compared it to gold right we did compare it to gold everybody likes to talk about gold i don't really get it uh but because but gold is something that's sort of like one of these kind of classic i mean i think part of it is you know for years uh econ professors that came before all of us that talked about gold prices and gold and this and uh and so the thing with gold is it's it, it has um generally speaking both high returns and very high variance um and so a lot of people are always kind of looking how things are relative to gold in terms of does it, how does it risk reward sort of trace out so but it's, it's in there as well and we have we looked at housing and we looked at cpi and uh if if you want to, if you're really interested in the report we have a couple different measures of equity return and we have both government and corporate bonds in there and so uh, we got a lot of information but the, but the basic takeaway is farmland kind of sits right there in the middle 
And then the last thing you took a look at was the correlation across investments. And this is why people outside of agriculture are sometimes very interested in having farmland as part of their portfolio. Explain that for us. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's really why people outside of, of, of agriculture, but also I think people inside of agriculture benefit from this, which is sort of like I was mentioning, it's sort of thinking about the great recession period where we had a huge decline in the economy over a number of years and we see equities markets fall and get more volatile. Same thing with bonds, but the ag sector was booming, right? So we had great commodity prices, and uh, wonderful trade relationships and new technologies. And so it was, it was a great time for the ag sector. Um, and so they sort of were moving opposite of each other. And so what that would mean is that the returns are what we would call inversely correlated. So one, one rises, the other falls. Um, and we liked that as an, and when we're investing in things, we like to have that inverse correlation because we like to sort of be able to smooth out. So we're not sort of feast or famine. We have some things going up, some things going down. Um, or we like things to have a very low to no correlation with other things that we're investing in, right? So if we, because uh, we don't want to have is if you put, you know, all of your money into a single stock, then all of your wealth rises and falls with that, right? So when we spread out and diversify across a complex portfolio, and so farmland has a really good, what we call portfolio effect, right? So it has uh, the ability to diversify because it's low correlation with other, other things you can invest in, um, either as low or negative. Um, and, and both of those are preferred to, to, positive and, and, and big. So. This has been known for quite a while, but you know, it's really in recent years, I think generated some interest, uh, particularly by some of the pension funds, right? Yeah. And it, yeah, it's one of those things that we all sort of, um, ag economists have been kind of calculating tables like this for a very, very long time. Um, but they never get old for at least us to look at. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of it is just sort of these, uh, other people that are investing and what they're really looking for is building a portfolio. Um, and sort of, you know, if you, if you have any of the pension funds, um, investment firms, but really a lot of activity in the farmland investment space is coming from, uh, what investor community calls high net worth individuals. So if you're someone who is from uh, a rural County in Indiana, and you've made, uh, a lot of money through some other means, uh, a lot of those folks then just buy farmland in that area because they know this is a good quality investment. It's low correlation with these, you know, with my 401k holdings and some uh, other other things I would have as other investments. So. so one of the things that people have talked about in recent years, and I think we might have even done this on some previous webinars, that's ostensibly supported farmland values was the idea that there was a relatively small amount of farmland coming to market. And you were actually able to obtain some data to look at what percentage of farmland actually has been changing hands on an annual basis in Indiana for the last several years. And some interesting results. You want to share those with us? Yeah. So I've been working with my graduate student, uh, Chad Fichter, and we got some uh, data from a company called Land Sales Bulletin. And so they track land sales in a number of states around the Midwest. So Indiana, Illinois, Iowa and Wisconsin, I believe. Um, and so uh, got access to Indiana land transactions through them, but they actually go around to the courthouses and, and take all the filings of land that's transacted. So it's fine for us researchers, people that work in the market uh, know that that's sort of a slower process. 
So we stopped here at the end of 2020. So what I'm showing here is the volume of sales between the beginning of 2016 and the end of 2020, um, both as the number of transactions and the total acres transacted. Now, the other thing that's tricky about looking at actual transfers versus things like the survey that we run is we have to get definitions of what is a farmland and what's a farmland sale. So we use the state definition that it's a farmland already, but then we removed any land that is listed as forested, partially forested, wetlands, nature, uh, uh, some environmental uses that are not. So as close as we can tell that this is bare quality, you know, bare farmland. Um, and then we also removed anything that was between a related party. So we look at things that are what we call arm's length transactions, meaning that anybody that's watching this uh, webinar or listening along could have access to buy it. It wasn't like a transfer within family members. Um, and so we looked at just that subset um, and looking at all the transactions. And you, if you look, the number of transactions and the acres transacted is relatively stable uh, over that period. So we don't see huge influx. Um, and the reason uh, I'm interested in this as, a, as an economist is that we have a lot of ways we think about prices being determined in markets that have to do with, with uh, supply responses. So obviously the, the simplest, right, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, when we have low supply, prices tend to be higher. Um, but also from an investment standpoint, when uh, bubbles are often accompanied by high transaction volume, right? So if we see um, a lot of market frenzy and prices rising in, in transactions, that's sometimes a warning sign of like, we gotta see what's, make sure what's going on here, make sure things are moving smoothly. So, uh, but yeah, so both transaction and acre transaction have been relatively stable over time. So if, if we move forward one, what I was ultimately trying to get uh, is an idea of the turnover, an, an estimate of turnovers. If we go forward one slide. Uh, so again, turnover is also hard to measure, right? So we have these measures of transactions and then for sort of what is the stock of farmland available, I used uh, county level farmland from the USDA Census of Ag, which comes out every five years. So 2012, 2017 were the numbers, the years that we were able to observe here. And looking at how does that transaction volume divided by the number of the transacted acres divided by the number of acres in the county. Um, and then splitting out around the state, again, we can show here from 2016 to 2020, relatively stable. Um, so, but around two to two and a half percent of farmland will turn over on a typical year here in Indiana. Um, and there's a little bit of regional variation. So the Southeast seems to have higher um, amount of turnover uh, relative to the lower part or, or to the other parts of the state, which are, which are low, lower, but they, outside of that Southeast region, they all sort of hang in that sort of around 2%. So the bottom line is it doesn't look like the argument that lack of turnover or lack of supply coming to the market is really a very good explainer with respect to what's happened to farmland values in recent years, right? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, or, or the transactions are somehow happening without people noticing, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that it appears that the, the the supply demand that are meeting at the transactions, or what's sort of meeting in the market, has been relatively stable. Um, and this is positive news for, like, like you said, Todd, for outside investors. I mean, the fact you know, I I I didn't think that the transactions would be this high. I thought it'd be yeah. half of that. 
maybe closer to that 1% because, you know, I've, I've seen, read some articles in the past where it was, it was that low. And, and so this is, this is good stuff to say the least, but, but the fact that it's two to two and a half percent is good news for outside investors. I mean, that market does seem to have some turnover. Yeah. If you look at the, you know, sort of other people that have worked in the space for a long time, it, it um, you know, most recent I'd seen sort of in the last sort of five to six years, um, in other states, and that usually hangs more around sort of like the one and a half percent, one to one and a half. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we, it is a pretty, it's a pretty robust market, I think, as far as farmland markets go. So the other thing you took to look at was the mean price, the average price based on this transaction data. And then you compared that to the Purdue Farmland Value Survey uh, information for both top quality, average quality, and, and even the poor quality land. Yeah. So the, the tricky thing, again, all, working with transaction data is, is much, uh, is much harder for a lot of ways, but we do have a measure of what's the value per acre. Um, and so we did just the straight average across the, the entire state. And we also have it in the report broken out by region. We, we repeated this analysis at the regional level, but it's just sort of what is the average value? of all of the land that's transacted per acre. The survey we're able to get explicitly asked them about, you know, high, you know, high productivity, average productivity, corporate. We can't really split it that way with the just transaction record as well. Um, and so what I was wa mostly wanting to see or hoping to see would be that the transaction value, transaction record average price would fall somewhere in that range that we're seeing in the state. And, and you can see for most years, it is sort of hanging around close to the average. Um, but that also implies that, you know, the, the land that's being transacted um, should hopefully be coming sort of across all three of these different land quality classes. Um, and, uh, you know, whether or not it's just sort of dictated by just high value or you know, high productivity or low productivity in a certain area, we can't really tell uh, as well at this point. Uh, we're hopefully going to push this research a little farther and get into those issues a little bit more. But uh, but yeah, the other thing is that uh, it shows that hopefully that our survey uh, is in line with what the markets are, are showing as well. Yeah, when you look at the percentage change in that mean price, how does that stack up to the percentage changes that you saw in the Purdue Land Value Survey? Oh, Jim, that's a great question. I will get that to you later. I didn't even I didn't even think to put in the, the check to make sure the, the growth rates were the same. I just did a quick computation while we were talking and, and from 2019 to 2020, it looks like your mean transaction went up about 5%. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll take a look. I'll take a look. Um, I mean, eyeball at least sort of is moving in the same direction. Um, the eyeball test would say, but uh, yeah, I'll do, I'll, now I got, now I got a revised uh, version to write for. Oh, we got, we got your, a new research question that came out of the webinar. All right, cool. Here we go. All right. Well, that wraps up our webinar for today. Um, I want to thank our viewers and I want to thank our panelists for joining us today. So thanks to Todd and, and Michael for spending time with us today. Um, you can get a full report uh, with a lot more detail than what we were able to cover here today on the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's website, um, purdue.edu slash commercial ag. And if you look under popular searches, uh, we've got the farmland value and cash funnel rates 2021 survey out there. And I'm sure that'll be popular the whole year. This is always one of the more popular reports that, that comes up uh, from Purdue ID Econ every year. So with that, uh, thanks again for joining us. And on behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minter. Thank you. Thank you.